HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. Today, my guest is Jessica Koslow, owner of Squirrel in L.A. Jessica started her professional career baking in Atlanta, Georgia. She's also worked in TV production in L.A. and New York City. Uh, She has been named L.A.'s Chef of the Year by Eater, and she recently published a cookbook, Everything I Want to Eat, which was nominated for a James Beard Award. Alice Waters has said about her, Jessica's cooking is always in tune with the seasons, and I admire her approach to food that is pure and beautiful. She has a new restaurant that she is working on right now in Los Angeles, and she's here in New York uh, cooking at the South Seaport. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What's up? So you're from Long Beach. (laughs) You are a California girl born and raised. I want to hear what it is like growing up in Long Beach in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. What's life like on on the shore over there? (laughs) I always say that people think that it's... uh, I mean, I think my my existence is very different than what you maybe have seen on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I, I grew up figure skating, so Long Beach was a place that I rested my head. I was always usually a rink rat and at the rink. Also, humorously, my mom's a dermatologist, so I would be lathered in sunscreen <laughs> uh, most of my days. And even though our backyard... As a boat dock, uh, there was no boat in it. Um, so growing up in Long Beach, my version of it is very different than what you, we all might expect. I would say the funniest thing that I can say is that I did grow. Uh, my mom is I'm is a single mother, uh, and I'm an only child. And I had a nanny growing up, and she went to high, she was Snoop Dogg's. Uh, 
girlfriend in sixth grade and went to high school together. <laughs> okay. So, so I had. So you've got that LBC connection. Yeah, I've got All the right. connection. And actually, uh, she bought me uh, his first CD, uh, Snoop's first CD. She took me to the warehouse. It was like, all right, like, don't tell your mom. Like, Yeah, we're you were gonna... too young to be yeah. listening to that probably. Yeah, so, but we're going to get you doggy style. And it, I was like, this is amazing. So I felt I felt in, in line, even though I was uh, a nerdy little uh, girl ice skating for my entire uh, adolescence. That's an interesting choice because I wouldn't think that Southern California mm-hmm. is a ice skating, you know, capital of the United States. It seems like a very difficult place to do a lot of ice skating, right? I wouldn't think that there'd yeah, be like that's tons why, of rinks around. Well, that's but. why uh, the figure skaters there are so good is because here it's considered like a pastime. Like, mm-hmm. oh, it's so lovely. It's a pastime. But um, in California, it's it's a profession, how you know? serious did you get into it? Oh, I was I was on the U.S. team for four years. And, okay, so uh, you were. I was, yeah, I was trying to get it. Really. Did really you ever go to? Were you like Olympics bound for in that capacity? I mean, or? I thought so, uh, but I I did not pass go. I competed in a, in a sport that uh, was removed from the Olympics in like the late eighties. And what uh, sport is that? It's called school figures. I mean, I did it all, but like I was national champion in in school figures so you know if that was a sport that uh it's why peggy fleming won the olympics it's uh why christy yamaguchi was happy when it was no longer in the olympics you know so yeah why did you stop skating i I mean the sport i i competed till its very end i competed Mm -hmm. the last uh competition uh, in, in like 1999 and it's kind of having a resurgence right now, but that was like the last, uh, national world competition and, and, uh, I won that. So, you know, that's it. Now I gotta, now I have to cook. I had to find find something else (laughs) to do. You had to get a different job. I had to get a different job and that job is cooking. This might be a reach, but I figure if you're at like if you're at peak athletic performance, you're probably very concerned about what was going in your body, even at a very young age. Uh, your mom sounds like she was kind of strict. Mm. I'm curious about what type of uh, food home you had growing up. Yeah. What, what got purchased? What got eaten? Like, were you already influenced by that sort of Southern California market farm ethos or, or not yet. Yeah. You know, my mom and I would go, there's a, there was a farmer's market in Long Beach, uh, in, at a, like outside of what was considered like a Home Depot is called Dooley's. And every week we would go and, uh, get sprouts from the sprouts guy. Um, and we would make this tuna, salad together that was basically just like tuna and lemon juice and and sprouts and that was i would say it feels very like oh the healthy protein oriented and also like light uh market driven in its own way um and that was kind of my earliest memories with cooking with my mom was you know uh, eating, eating light, eating well. I mean, I was also a really big fan of the Coco's chicken salad. Uh, so, you know, I, back then it was really food for fuel. It wasn't, uh, food, 
an exploration of food. So I think once I stopped skating, that's really when I was like, oh my God, what have I missed out on for the last like 20 years of my life? So uh, you, then I deep dived. Did you go to a, a normal high school? Were you traveling too much in order to have kind of that that normal childhood elementary school, high school experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, I did go to a normal, I went to a private school mm-hmm. basically until I graduated high school. Um, but I did, I skated in the morning from like 5am to seven. Uh, so I'd have to get up at like four fifteen, and then I would get out of school at one. So I missed all the extracurriculars afterwards. So, you know, I did spend the majority of my, you know, all of my teens, um, kind of living this dual life of, of trying to be a normal kid and also not being a normal kid. After you finished high school, you went to Brandeis. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you went to Georgetown. Mm -hmm. So, uh, restaurants are often loaded with people who may not have even finished high school. Uh, they are often really safe, welcoming places to people that have, taken a different path in their life that haven't necessarily gone uh, to school. You have a master's degree. I'm Mm -hmm. curious um, how valuable or not has your college experience been to like transitioning to the restaurant world? I think each person has their own path, you know, to what works for them. Uh, I'm, I'm, diverging right now, but right now we're at South Street Seaport and some of the cooks that are there are are somewhat interns from the food and finance high school here in Manhattan. And there's 60 students, I guess, a year that are in this extracurricular program of culinary work. So these kids are 16 years old, 17 years old, and are have they already know where they want to go to. They want to go to a college that has a hospitality program. They're in the kitchen with us, cooking, prepping, plating. Um, they have a strong idea of who they are uh, already. And that's really empowering. And that's their their trajectory. Some of them are like, all right, well, I want to go into the military and, like, and, and cook. Um, and for me, it, it was a different path to get to where I am now. Like I, I learned a lot going to college, doing economics, thinking about uh, finance and business. Um, and, uh, and in graduate school, it was a larger layer of more like working in the digital world. So it made me very aware of not only maybe how to run a business, but also how to, um, have a voice that felt consistent and thoughtful, uh, in the digital space. And then I started cooking and that helped me understand, uh, key points in the kitchen and what it meant to be a part of a team building dishes um, that would eventually make their way to a table. So that was my that that's my experience, uh, and it really helped to give a, a greater understanding of what I needed to actually build maybe a restaurant or a couple that could um, have their own strong sense of voice and sense of place, and yeah. Before you did jump into cooking full time, though, you got your master's in media theory Mm -hmm. and then you ended up working uh, at Fox and you were working in TV production, correct? Yeah. I want to know what's media theory (laughs) and also what was it like working uh, in the 
in the TV world, you know, when you were doing production and you were sort of involved in Hollywood, but you were also, you were living in New York, right? Before mm-hmm. you jumped back to LA. So yeah. can you just kind of take us through like grad school through your time yeah. in New York and kind of what that was like a little bit? Yeah. Grad school was, grad school was great. I, you know, I felt like that was my college experience where it was, uh, at, at Georgetown and, um, the media theory program, a lot of the people who are, that were in my class, they either get their PhD and become, uh, you know, they become teachers at universities, uh, about media and what's happening in digital and not not digital space. Um, a lot of them work at Yahoo. They were, that's, Probably not true. They probably work at at Google, you know, or Facebook, (laughs) Yahoo. I don't know. I don't know. They used to, yeah, they used to work at Yahoo, but they're probably not there. Uh, They're probably at 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 Google. Um, And then uh, some of them are like producers and and uh, developers of content, and that's that's really what um, I was doing. I I went and I first moved to Atlanta after college and was cooking. And then I moved here and, uh, to New York and, and got a job at Fox where I was, uh, working with a number of different television shows and producing all of their digital content. Was there a a specific moment when you were in New York and you thought back to Atlanta and you thought, maybe have I made the wrong decision? Do I want to be in food or was, was there a duration of like fulfillment and satisfaction in New York when you were working in TV? Yeah, I think there's both. I think, um, you know, when you, when you jump into the food world, uh, you wonder how you're going to make it work financially for you. It's a, you really, it's all about the work you put in and you, you're climbing. And, um, I, I got really nervous about, um, how to make it work financially for me. And so I moved to New York and took the job at Fox where, um, I was making a lot of money, but I also was, um, like emotionally unsatisfied. And uh, the thing about the job though, was that it taught me as a producer, it taught me how many different, uh, people and, and, uh, are in are important to making uh, something work. So, uh, in the kitchen, it's not just about, or in a restaurant, it's not just about the cooks. Like it's about the fr- it's about service, and it's it's about the plates and the customer experience and the whole the holistic space. And a lot of times, it, people don't think about that. You know, each each uh, role might find their role to be the only role, but it's it's everyone working in tandem. It's a band. It's the drummer. It's the guitar player. It's the singer. It's everyone together. So that's what uh, working at Fox kind of taught me. You know? So I want to hear about this overnight baking gig that you had oh for a God. little while. So your job takes you back to LA, right? Yeah. So you're still yeah. working in TV, mm-hmm. and then you think for some crazy reason that it's a smart idea to bake overnight while still maintaining your day job. Mm-hmm. All yeah, right. it was tell, not tell us about how that cool. went down. Where were you where were you baking? Like how did that how did that come to be? It was not a cool look. I mean I <laughs> I was I had moved to LA and my ex is a winemaker in in Napa now and we had moved from New York to LA because we were together going to move up 
to Napa and hopefully I was going to start something up there and he was going to uh, get into wine up there or, or work further in wine up there. Um, and so I started this transition period where I was uh, the overnight baker and I was the only one. So I was doing like wholesale bread, like huge 50, 60, 80 pound batches of dough um, overnight from, from midnight to 8 a.m., and uh, it was at the Village Bakery. It was really the only place doing, like, decent bread at the time. And then I would come home. I would sleep for two hours, and I would go to Fox. And I would literally, like, sleep at my desk. It was, it was a very bad look <laughs> on me, on me particularly. How long did you do that for? Was it, like, a couple of weeks? No, or? I did it for, I, yeah, I did it for, like, six months. And then uh, I ended up leaving and going back to Atlanta to help and Quatrano, my mentor, op- uh, opened her, or be. I was there for the 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 fall uh, Christmas time for Abattoir, which is an, a restaurant she had with uh, a chef out there in Adla- mm-hmm. in Atlanta. Yeah, cool. So, can you tell us a little bit about her, the project in Atlanta that she was opening? But mm. also, is it Bacchanalia that you Bacchanalia? S- yeah, Bacchanalia that you started at. I mean, I feel like Anne Quatrano is like this magical woman that in the food industry people know and love but she doesn't have as much uh like people know who alice waters is Mm -hmm. and i feel as if if people know who alice waters is they should absolutely know who ann quatrano is because um she has a huge farm where a lot of her products come out of in georgia uh she has a restaurant called star provisions she had quinones and abattoir uh, and Bacchanalia is still around and it's, and Star Provisions and Bacchanalia just opened in its new iteration in a new space. And so, you know, she's someone who doesn't rest on her laurels. She had this space for probably 20 years that Star Provisions and Bacchanalia lived in and, uh, she realized it was time to move it. And so she moved it. And I think there's something really powerful in being like, look, this is my livelihood, my business. And times change, and I need to change with them. Um, her food has always been uh, 100%, feels 100% Southern, and she's connected to her team, her people. She's really someone who I respect in how she runs her restaurants. You say that she's someone that you look up to. She's a mm-hmm. mentor. Uh, how how much contact are are you in with her these days since you're embarking on a new project and you open up a restaurant? Like, do you lean on her for, yeah, for stuff? I do. I see her, I see her a couple times a year actually. Um, and I, I always, always have reached out to her to say, you know, this is new territory. Like I'm about to, I worked in fine dining at her restaurants and now I'm going back into dinner service and I have questions and she has answers, but she never tells me that her answers are the right answer. She just says, look, this is my experience from like 30 years in business. Um, take what you will. Is there anyone else in, uh, in LA that you consider a mentor that you lean on, that you speak to often to ask these questions to as you, as you move from a wildly popular spot that's sort of front loaded in the day to your next project, which is going to be a nighttime spot. You know, uh, Ori who has Bestia, Mm -hmm. I actually talk to him quite a lot because he, he is a beast in the kitchen. He, he is, he's just a beast. And I say that in such in a positive way because that restaurant is packed every single night. They do 
thousands of covers probably a night. Um, and the consistency of the food at the number of people that they're serving is so high. And that is rare. It is rare to go to a restaurant that is serving a exponentially gr- huge number of people a night and have it be delicious. And there's something to be said for the kind of team that he's built, that he continues to build, the food that he's figured out and how he layers it. Um, And so I talk to him. I see like, and he's just, you know, if he doesn't like it, it's over. Like he's, he's ready to move on. He's not afraid to say, you know what, that's not working. He doesn't like, you know, pick at it. And uh, he's been really helpful in kind of formulating dinner for me. Let's jump back to breakfast, though. How did <laughs> Squirrel come to be? Mm. How did a sort of a the idea for maybe jam, if that's how it started in mm-hmm. your head, become what Squirrel is currently today? Yeah. I mean, when you think of jam, I think you think of breakfast. You know, you think of toast. You think you might think of a porridge or oatmeal with a little jam. So it needed to feel honest in that regard. And I, I couldn't imagine going from a jam company to dinner. It didn't make sense. So um, going to, to breakfast and lunch made sense. And that's, that's why it is. I mean, I, I just came from a little breakfast or a bakery here in, in Bushwick. And uh, he started by making breads. And so, of course, there's toast and lots of different options on that. So it, that's where you, st- you feel it's natural. It's a natural fit. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about Squirrel and, of course, the new project opening mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. Stick with us here on Heritage Radio. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. Welcome back to The Line. I'm here with Jessica Coslow from Los Angeles, the chef and owner of Squirrel. She's going to be opening up a new project very soon called Tell. Before we get to that, I do want to continue talking about Squirrel. I want to know uh, why that neighborhood and why that spot. Did you look at lots of different spaces? Was it one of the first ones you saw, <laughs> like how did you end up like, where you ended up? How the hell did I get there? For, for listeners that have never been to LA or have never been uh, to the restaurant, can you give us a little geography lesson? Like where is it in <laughs> reference to it's, something they may yeah. have heard of? It's in East Hollywood. It's on the corner of Virgil and Marathon. And it's basically the backside of Silver Lake. So one block parallel uh, east is actually uh, Silver Lake, um, but it is essentially East Hollywood. And 
when I moved there in 2011, that location, that street itself had nothing. It was basically a street that people drove down and didn't walk down and didn't really know it existed. And now it's becoming a thing. Um, I found it on Craigslist. I found it, uh, it was Gus's lunchbox before, and he was selling his lease uh, for $10,000. And so that's why I moved there, because it was five minutes from my house, and I was just at the time making jam and having jam classes. And I didn't think that I needed people to go go there. I just wanted a place that was... um, near my home and easy to get to. And so that's why I did it. How did you transition into doing a build out and actually creating a space where people could come in, order at a counter and have some seating? Like, was that your idea? Did it click in? Was there a partner involved that, that sort of swayed you in that direction? No, I have, I don't have a partner with squirrel. It's like, it's been really, uh, just it's, all formed by itself. So that that was an easy transition because it was once a cafe. It was uh, a taco spot. And just kind of making it again a place that people can go and get a bite at was, we already had the health permit. It was just a, a real quick close and reopen kind of situation. So how long were you open as a, a jam mm. factory slash classroom before you opened as Squirrel? A year and a half. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we opened Squirrel in October of 2012, the cafe. Um, and then we, uh, Squirrel started in March of 2011. What's the name in reference to? Squirreling Things Away, which is, yeah, an old time preserving term. And it's a girl who squirrels and that's the, the name. Yeah. How immediate was the neighborhood response to squirrel once you open as a place where people could sit down and eat what's so you know i coming from new york and coming from like i had moved back to la in 2008 from new york and i lived in greenpoint in 2008 and the thing that i missed most were these places where i could go and feel like i was a part of a community and i could have a coffee and maybe a little bite to eat and feel really neighborly there was nothing like that in silver lake and a lot of people compare williamsburg and silver lake and i too think okay well i i dug a hole from new york and i popped up in my home but the only thing that was around was intelligentsia which is a coffee shop um and it's pretty it was pretty it's still there still really large and that was like the meeting ground there was no small like humble place where it really felt like people knew your name like the daytime cheers um and so that's why i wanted to have a place like squirrel was it immediate that people started to flock there no it was a slow build i i mean by by 2013, like May of 2013, uh, I think that that was when a piece came out in Bon Appetit, and that was really when we blew up. You know, Jonathan Gold wrote his review; it was really positive, and then um, Bon Appetit, and that was that was that was the kicker of like, oh my gosh, this is actually working. Um, until then, it was a lot of uh, playing, figuring out what worked and what didn't. How does that feel when you wake up and? You're doing something that you started. You see that there's a great line. The demand is there. You see that uh, you're selling lots of wonderful things that you're making and that there's uh, rave reviews. There's critical acclaim. Does that 
does that to you feel like uh, reinforcement? Does it scare you? Does it make you happy? How does it make you feel? <laughs> How does it make you feel? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I, that's a great question to ask everyone. I mean, I think uh, there's always this little bit of fear of like, okay, that's going to end tomorrow, which is also a good thing because it keeps me pushing. Um, it also... I think the most rewarding thing is that it's helped to build a team of people beyond me that are also really passionate about what they do and they're bringing new ideas and new creative spirit and, and uh, ingenuity into the restaurant. And so that's what I'm most excited about is like this new, this con continual brain exploration that happens at Squirrel because there's excitement around what we're doing. I want to talk about your cookbook. Yeah. Uh, not only because of the content, uh, but specifically the cover. I think mm -hmm. uh, you've done a lot of interesting things with the cookbook that deviate from the norm. Uh, so chefs agonize over the cover of their cookbooks. And for those that are listening right now, I suggest that you maybe Google the cover of the cookbook so you can kind of follow along with us as Jessica describes it. But um, there were there were some design wars that you had over this cookbook cover, right? Yeah, did you see that piece? I did. Yeah. yeah. I saw this great piece online, um, which was exciting to read because I, when I saw your cookbook, I was struck immediately by it, by how different it was mm -hmm. from the traditional cookbook. So for those that are driving or can't really Google it right now, can you just briefly describe the, the finished cover and what it looks like? Mm -hmm. Um, it's, there's a jacket, which, automatically is different from the norm because I think a lot of books now don't have a jacket there. Uh, there's a photo on the, the hardcover. Um, the jacket is white, which is also a, a challenge for a lot of um, publishers to get behind because they can uh, get dirty easily. Um, and then uh, I would say there's a border around that white and the photo is... Uh, the rest of the front cover. And that photo is a hand that's coming into basically a table scene. Um, the copy on the front cover, on the jacket, does not go into the, the photo, which I think is kind of like a Bon Appetit thing where the copy is on the photo. But I think we tried to give a lot of space for the copy and the font to live separately from the image. And then underneath the jacket is a... Uh, is, is the actual other cover, which a lot of people also remove the jacket and just keep on their, their book. It, uh, they keep the book on the coffee table. It seems a little bit more coffee table-like. Um, just one font, all the same size, and it's a really beautiful, beautiful cover. Yeah, the thing that really <clears throat> jumps out at you is that it's not apparent immediately that it's a cookbook mm -hmm. uh, because the photo is... Um, it's so, it's bright, but it's not glossy. And mm -hmm. while the food is very apparent, it almost looks like it's just an artist photograph of a table setting and the yeah. arm kind of coming in is disorienting a little bit. So I'm curious, like, so I know that Scott Barry was involved in mm -hmm. this process as well. Um, can you just talk a little bit about like some of the iterations and how uh, your publisher and you, like, how did you make it to this point? I think a lot of uh, chefs and people listening to this show that own a lot of cookbooks, they always wonder, like, how 
how do you get from point A to point B? Once you come up with the idea for the cookbook right. and you say, all right, we're putting the um, these 80 recipes in it, like how do you get from that, the copy, to that finished product? You yeah. Know? Well, I guess I want to say one thing, which is I don't know if you read the Eater piece that came out recently, um, but it also discussed two cookbooks that uh, one just one recently came out and one's coming out this fall that now basically have the covers that the squirrel cookbook has. I didn't see that, no. Um, so you're like, you've set a new path, Yeah, perhaps. so now we've set a new precedent for what a cookbook cover can be because what has been selling a lot of times is um, the f- what cookbook publishers really want is basically a, round, a photo of a round bowl on the cover of of the book. And that was something that if you look at the squirrel cookbook in relation to all the other cookbooks that had come out last fall, it was like this strange book that, what that, uh, stood out between every other book that had like a round looking bowl on the cover. Um, so we, you know, we did, we went back and forth with, uh, the publisher because we didn't really want a photo on the cover um, that was it. We wanted a jacket and we wanted that jacket to be able to come off to kind of showcase a different cover, uh, underneath. Um, but it was, yeah, we went through everything under the sun from big font, small font, um, no font, all photo. Um, and we settled on what, on, on the cookbook. Uh, I think the other thing is that Scott Barry, uh, is, is a part of squirrel. Like, I said, I don't have any partners. I don't have any financial partners, but I do think of Scott as my partner. He is a creative director of Squirrel. He does all the design elements from the jar to um, any sort of posters, any sort of new furniture that's at the restaurant, the um, signs that are outside um, to our website and to the book. And so what that meant was that the book we we created that and handed it over to the publisher done. We didn't actually let the publisher touch it, um, as, uh, they didn't form it. They, they formatted it, they cleaned it up, but they didn't, uh, design any pages, the cover. And that's a rare thing. So that's something that squirrel does that maybe other restaurants don't do is basically have, a creative agency inside of the restaurant doing all this interesting design work. Let's continue talking about creativity and photography and uh, visuals and how you present the <clears throat> restaurant. Squirrel has a lot of Instagram followers. People tend to be very into Instagramming their food these days. I'm curious about what your thoughts are. Is it, you know, it's a I lot mean, of people consider it like a necessary evil. Are you on board? Are you against it? Like, what do you feel about social media and how it's impacted uh, Squirrel? I think it's, I think I'm on board because I think um, it can inspire it. We use Instagram as a place to uh, catalog the inspirational things that we do. So if we're inspired at the restaurant, we post whatever dish that is because it's interesting. It pushed our buttons. It pushed our boundaries and hopefully it can push yours. And I think it's great for people to take photos of the food because it can 
inspire them. Or it's like, all right, I checked it off the list. I was there, you know, like I ate here. (laughs) Um, There's also this guy called Toothpicks out of LA. And I don't know if you know who that guy is, but his Instagram videos are hilarious. He, he likes to be like the Instagram Yelp. So what he does is he makes these like 15 second videos of a restaurant that like basically define it. And the one for squirrel was that these guys went uh, to squirrel, they ordered, they sat down, they were delivered their food, took a bunch of photos. And then the, f- and then the server came back, said, are you done? And they're like, yeah. And they took it away. So they never <laughs> actually ate the food. They just Instagrammed it. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the future and I I'm on board. Hopefully you eat it while it's still hot though. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know about the new restaurant. Uh, I'm, I want to know where it is and what you're going to be doing there. But also, can you talk about this <clears throat> farm in Malibu? That was a, was once a cactus mm-hmm. farm and it is a drought tolerant farm. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. Uh, please tell do, the listeners where do I about start? that. Okay. I start with the farm. Start with the farm and okay. then tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing at the restaurant. <clears throat> yeah. So the farm is three acres. Um, it's, it's a huge lot of land, but the, the plot that's the farm is three acres. Um, to me, what's really important and how we're planting it out is, uh, it's, it is drought tolerant. It's about planting what the surroundings and nature can provide. So in this area, uh, obviously it's, it's Southern California water resources are tight. Um, there's a lot of salinity that is in the water because of its uh, proximity to the ocean. And, uh, it's also uh, has some boron in the soil. So we're, we're working through all these things. It turns out coffee grinds are really good for the soil. Um, but the point is planting things that really define what can grow in that area without using or overusing water resources. So for example, in California and around the world, we are in the glow in the U S at least we love arugula, but arugula is a really big water suck and we shouldn't be using it. So that's not something that we are, we're planting there. We're actually planting a lot of carob. We have a lot of citrus and avocados that are just kind of like already on the property, but, um, you know, passion fruit, dragon fruit, carob, those are things that, um, are uniquely, um, not all plums also that, kind of just grow, uh, without the need for, um, a lot of water. And by, by farming in this way, uh, we're, we're, um, championing certain ingredients that hopefully we can bring awareness and value to, um, not only for ourselves, but for other chefs in our community and farmers in the community. And so the new restaurant, which came first, the farm or the restaurant? Um, I mean, it all came together. It was kind of like, a, I, I do have a partner for this project. She's amazing. And this was something that she had. And uh, I came in to say, okay, this is what we're doing. This is how we're going to define it. This is, this, is the, this is the next project. And so you're calling it Tell. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what's that name mean? And what's the food going to be like? Mm. Um, okay, so Tell, uh, in archaeology is, a as a mound that is formed through the accumulated layers of civilizations living on the same site for hundreds of thousands of years. So it's, uh, made of, uh, of lives of civilizations of, of creative things left behind. And I think that there's something really powerful in a, in, in, uh, calling a restaurant that, um, 
especially since for me, this was a deep dive into my heritage. This was a, obviously, uh, well, I am Jewish. I, I'm curious and intrigued by my own Jewish, uh, culinary history, but also the, the history of the people of our people and how they've moved and traveled throughout the world and taken certain ingredients and dishes and techniques and flavors with them and how around the world they've, uh, um, developed into whatever dishes uh, are iconic in that region. And, you know, seeing it through a California lens, it is its own perspective. I'm not trying to create an Israeli restaurant. I'm not trying to do um, an Ashkenazi, like a, a, like a deli, you know. But I am thinking about those flavors and um, ingredients and, and dishes and making them their own thing in under an LA sunshine. I'm curious if you can, uh, expand on this. So you said my passion is inseminating these flavors from my childhood, Middle Eastern pairings with an Ashkenazi sensibility into Mm. California cuisine, which is pretty much exactly what you were just saying. Is there a specific dish that you're working on right now or that you have in development that you feel is a, like a really solid representation of, of what you're trying to put forth? Yeah. You know, so we, we are at South street seaport this week. It ends on the second when, and uh, which is Saturday. And the dishes that we're doing there are representative of the dishes, some of the dishes that will be at Tell. Um, and again, I think also the layers in, in this new restaurant are some of those layers are squirrel, are like techniques that we've pulled from being at Squirrel. So um, we have a dish there that's malawa, that's a Yemenite flatbread that's like really flaky and layered. And instead of being, and, and it's served with like almost, uh, it's like Bubby's like lacto-fermented pickles that have been brunoise and they're in uh, like a Lebna cream cheesy kind of thing. And like pickles in, dill pickles in cream cheese already is delicious. And you might be like, oh, that's a Russ and Daughters, you know? Uh, but it's actually uh, with Malawa. It's not with a bagel. And, uh, we're doing a sturgeon, which we think might be smoked, but instead it's cooked perfectly. It's past more ranch from California. It comes with a holba, which is um, this fenugreek. Fenugreek, uh, when it sits in water, it will ferment and turn into a foam. And, uh, and it's served with a smoked... Um, Santa Rosa plums that are then dried, which is very uh, similar uh, technique that's done in Poland. Um, so it's it is really marrying these kind of like flavors and techniques from everywhere um, under under our guys. So you started Squirrel. You don't have any partners, and now you're moving into a bigger sp- yeah. a bigger space. You have a partner now. I assume that with the uh, rave reviews and critical claim that you've been approached by investors and people that would love to, you know, turn the squirrel into the next blank, you know, uh, they always say that going from one to two is, is the most difficult. And then I've had people on the show that say like one to two was the hardest. And then when I went to three to four, it got easier. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on ever, uh, doing more than one squirrel? And uh, as you look forward to your upcoming second project, do you have plans down the line for, you know, for more growth? Is that something that you think about right now? Gosh, 
<laughs> I would just like to get this one open, you know, like I, I'm so like in the moment that I just need to get this. I need to get it open and operational and like let it crawl, you know, like it, let it learn to walk. Like I, that's what I think about. I would love to support projects from some of my chefs currently. You know, I think all of us are, are looking to grow and spread our wings and evolve. And I know that, um, my own chefs want, have a path that would, that they would like to go down. And there's some of them that I'd really like to champion. So I'm, I mean, in my head, do I have other projects that I would love to do? Yes. Do I want to do another squirrel? I don't know. I think that there's something really special about this, like very, it's on a corner. It feels it's, it's its own thing. It's really iconic for the neighborhood. Um, let it be that for now. Um, and let me focus on getting tell open and hopefully I can, um, evolve some of my own cooks and, and help them find, find their own space and their own voice and, and, you know, champion them. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. When can people go to tell when is it going to be open uh what, every what year i know what year will i know it's it supposed to be open this year and uh with with all sorts of building and permit and department of transportation issues it's it's always it always is a, a quiet cry so for, for the time <laughs> so, being if they uh if they come to la they can uh visit you at squirrel yeah. which is on Virgil and Marathon, and then uh, Tell should be open next year in early spring. Thanks again for joining us, everyone. Please join us every Tuesday here on Heritage Radio for a new episode of The Line. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.